travel. Thank you, Jordan, and our worship team once again. So we'll continue our worship in the, the teaching of the Word now. And as we do so, I'd like you to open up to the book of Titus, please. Open up to the book of Titus. As I was preparing the last couple of weeks, originally I was going to, to preach from Titus chapter 2, um, verses 1 through 8. There's some fantastic verses through there, great verses on, on discipleship. But the more I studied, the more I began to look at that, I soon began to realise that to explain chapter 2, I would have to explain chapter 1. To explain chapter 1, I would have to give the context of the book. And that presented me with a dilemma. So, I asked Pastor Jeff, and his simple answer was, preach a series on the book of Titus. And so that's what we will be doing over the next few weeks and months as I preach. Uh, I will be opening up to the book of Titus. Um, and so this is our first sermon in the book and we'll take a bit of extra time firstly looking at um, a bit of the context of the book and then we'll be looking at the message of the book of Titus as a whole and then finally we will get into the first few verses this morning. So, the book of Titus. It was written around the years, between the years of 63 AD to 66 AD and the events described in the book, they don't fit really anywhere in the timeline of the book of Acts. Hence we know that they are post Paul's first imprisonment, but prior to his second imprisonment. The same as the other pastoral epistles like First and Second Timothy. So it's most likely when Paul was on his fourth missionary journey, but just before he was in prison in Rome for the second time. The letter was written by the Apostle Paul. He clearly gives evidence of that in the first few verses. It's actually something that's quite hotly protested amongst uh, higher critical scholars is whether or not it was even Paul that wrote it. But Paul says he writes it in the first verse. And the style, the literary style of the book also attributes Paul as being the author. He was writing to his young friend, an apostolic delegate, and that was Titus. Now, Titus is never mentioned in the book of Acts. But he is mentioned 13 times throughout Paul's letters. Um, we actually don't, because he is only mentioned 13 times, we actually don't know a whole lot about him. But what we do know about him uh, is this. From Galatians, he is a Greek. He is uncircumcised. He was converted, most likely converted under Paul's, under Paul's ministry. And we, we understand that from the way that Paul calls Timothy, uh, Paul calls Titus his child in the first four verses of Titus. He was a young man and he was genuinely concerned about the welfare of those that he served. And we see this in 2 Corinthians. Now, Google assures me that this is Paul here and this is Titus down here. So, 100% match according to Wikipedia. So, just keep that in mind. Titus ministered with impeccable integrity and he was considered Paul's partner and fellow worker in the gospel. So far as tracing him through biblical history, we know that he visited Corinth. Jeff has has been mentioning his name quite a bit lately. He was the one that delivered the severe letter and then reported back to the Apostle Paul. Um, Paul couldn't wait for him to come, so he went and met him along the way. And then he he reported that the majority of the Corinthians had repented, but there were still a few that hadn't and were still in their rebellion against Paul. So Paul writes 2 Corinthians and Titus gladly then takes it on and delivers it. After his travels there, he and Paul had made their way over to the island of Crete 
and there Paul had left him to finish establishing the churches while he went on to Nicopolis. So the island of Crete is this one, right in the middle of the Mediterranean there. It is 257 kilometres wide. It's quite a major trading hub in the middle of the, in the, middle of the Mediterranean. And the churches there, as far as we know, we, we can see in the book of Acts, the beginning of the book of Acts, that there were some Cretans there on the day of Pentecost. And so we would understand that they would probably be the ones who were first saved and then went back to the island and begun the churches there. And then it was Paul and Titus who then continued on the ministry. So um, the church, we know they were, they were a fledgling church, they were, they were a young church, and they needed good leadership. And we will see those things brought out in the book of the letter of Titus. Now this next slide, this is Crete, the island of Crete today. So if anybody here feels so inclined to send me on an investigative trip to Crete, I would gladly accept and I will give back a report on the condition of the church, if you like. Now, the message of the book of Titus. It's not just some random series that I am preaching on over the next few months and weeks. It's, it's something that, it was a deep conviction in my heart to, to, to teach and preach through a book that is intensely practical, but also intensely, intensely theological. This book of Titus covers basic foundations for us as believers. You can read the whole book in all of about ten minutes, and I would encourage you to do so in your spare time. But even though this book is only about ten minutes long, uh, reading through it, are we going to take our time looking through it because the message is so important for us, so crucial to us. I believe it is a very timely message for where we are as a church and, and where God has placed us at New Community. This is a letter for all ages. There are issues addressed in this book to young men. There are issues addressed to young women. Issues addressed to older men and older women. It's a book that contains a message for leaders and what they should do, what kind of men that they should be. It gives an outline of a plan of how to confront error in the church and how to deal with heresy. It teaches us how to face a hostile community and a hostile culture. It addresses issues of roles of men and women, that is, the biblical roles of, of men and women. And this book is packed full of discipleship information. A lot of the discipleship information that we know and, and we practice is from the book of Titus. This message, this small 10-minute letter, I would say, desperately needs to be heard by the church of the 21st century. It desperately needs to be at the forefront of our own lives, personally and in the lives of each other as we relate to one another in the church here at NCC. If you want to be a Christian that lives godly lives, if we want to be a church that displays godliness, then we need to hear the message of Titus. If you want to be motivated to live a righteous life, you need to hear the message of Titus. If you do not know what you need to hear, you need the message of Titus. <laughs> so what is the message? The message. The book of Titus has one overarching theme. The gospel produces godliness. That is, the gospel and how it motivates us towards godliness. How we as believers are motivated by the sound doctrine of Jesus Christ to demonstrate good works. Let's break that down further. The gospel or the work of the gospel produces within us good works. It's like, it's like this. If you're a genuine, born again, blood washed believer having come to saving faith by the sovereign hand of God, 
This change, this newness of life that you will now have within you motivates you to live a life that pleases God through good works. We see this as a recurring theme throughout Scripture. Colossians 2.6 Just as you have received the Lord Jesus Christ, so now walk in Him. You have the change, salvation, now you produce good works because of that. Before we get to our passage this morning, I want to look at these two concepts further. The concepts of the Gospel and the concept of godliness. Yeah, it was interesting this week... Um, I've begun a new job in the, in the last few weeks and uh, this week just gone I was working with a, a Christian bloke and it amazes me actually how many Christians still do not have a clear understanding of what the gospel is. If I was to ask any one of you here this morning could you give me the gospel in two minutes would you be able to actually do that and cover all the basic points of the gospel? I'm not kidding you, this, this guy, when I was having a discussion with him over lunch, I, I asked him, just, we were, we were talking about the gospel and, and about witnessing to others, and, he, and I said to him, can, can you tell me, can you tell me what the, what the gospel is? Can you present to me as though I'm an unbeliever? Let's sharpen each other, iron like iron. Can you present to me the gospel? He's like, yep, yeah. yep, absolutely, I don't even need two minutes. He's really confident, he's like, yep, nah, this, is, this is what it is. He goes... Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Huh? What? Ask for the gospel. And you give me this? Some weak, washy, watered down, happy feel, love go sentence that doesn't even mean anything. I'm not, I'm not even kidding you. This is, that was his response. That is not the core gospel truth. That is not the truth of the scriptures. This guy had rehearsed it a thousand times and he completely missed the point of the gospel. The gospel is this, folks. Here's God. Up here, perfect, holy, righteous, creator of the universe, just in every way. And here's us. I can't even get down that low. Here's us down here, blackened, tainted by sin, disobedient to the core, unable to please him in anything that we do. Remember that verse that says even our filthy even our good works are but filthy rags like menstrual cloths before the Lord. That is the literal translation of that verse. We in and of ourselves are lost, we are totally depraved. And you think of it in terms of a relationship. If we were to have a relationship with God as a sinner, we would have nothing to offer. We cannot have that relationship. We cannot have a relationship with God as a sinner. I think possibly the best explanation of the gospel is found in Ephesians 2. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace, the kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not, a result, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Our relationship with the Father, our relationship with God has been restored through Jesus Christ. The gap has been bridged because God in his mercy sent his son Jesus Christ to die upon the cross, taking our sins upon his body that we might now be able to stand before God stamped 
with the righteousness of God. And that is truly a praiseworthy thing. And because that change has now taken place, we can live lives, we can walk in the newness of life that Christ offers us through salvation. We can live lives in the pursuit of godliness. And this is our second concept, our second theme that runs throughout the entire book of Titus, the theme of godliness. So I was asking Nia, how, how best do we define godliness? I think in the simplest terms, think of the concepts of putting off and putting on. Putting off and putting on. In the pursuit of godliness, you are putting off the sinful behaviours that so easily ensnare, and you are putting on godlike, Christ-like character. Your desires are different, your outlook is different, your mindset is different. You want to bring glory to God no matter what you do, and you want to honour Christ and bring Him glory day in, day out. Now, this is not just putting off big sins like adultery or... I don't know, anything else, but even in the little areas of our lives, even in the little things of our lives that we think are seemingly insignificant, the way we lie, the way we drive, I need to listen to that one, the way we talk to our friends or the way we talk to our wives, do we have a harsh tongue? Do we pursue godliness in our relationships with one another? Do we pursue godliness in in regards to raising our children? How How we speak to them, how we discipline our kids? What about our thoughts? What about the way we think through things? When nobody else can see what's going on in your mind, are you thinking towards the glory of God? Notice how these two ideas of, of gospel, the gospel and godliness, they relate to each other. It's not godliness equals the gospel, but rather the gospel which produces godliness. Think one cannot be without the other, and I would go so far as to say that the gospel void of godliness is a false gospel. If you have claimed to have tasted the goodness that Christ offers through the salvation, but yet walk in a state of constant rebellion towards him and towards his word, then I would ask you to seriously think about your salvation. If you think that because you made some whimsical commitment as a child and have attended church ever since, and you think that that's what makes you a Christian, then you really need to examine your salvation. The gospel void of godliness is a false gospel. But the opposite is true in the book of Titus. We see so clearly the gospel will give us all the motivation we need to pursue godliness or to practice good deeds. And you think these, these these, these themes are hard to see in the book of Titus? Just turn with me quickly to chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 11. These are not our verses this morning, but, and we'll get to them later on, but let's read them. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to go and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This verse, these four verses, basically the gospel and godliness in four verses. 
And we'll look at that later on as, as we continue on in our series. But just for now, keep in mind the overarching theme of the book of Titus. Examine your hearts. Hear the message of Titus. Keep these things in mind as we go through our studies over the coming months. And as we do that, we will come to our passage this morning. That was my introduction. Josh is going to tell me off for a long introduction again. Now we come to our passage and we're going to read from chapter 1 starting at verse 1, and we'll read the first four verses. It says, Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised, promised ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted, according to the commandment of our God and Saviour, to Titus, my true child, in common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Looking at the first four verses, and as I began my study, I, I realised pretty quickly that we're not going to get through all four verses this morning, so we're just going to concentrate on the first two. In the first two, but in these verses we have somewhat of a, a normal salutation. This is this part of the the book is called the the salutation or the beginning of the letter. Um, it's a little longer than Paul's normal style and a little more detailed. Um, but this this particular salutation, this is not just a mere setting of context or some historical interest. And one thing I would encourage us all to do. How often do we do we begin reading a book of the Bible and just read over the first few verses? Oh, just a salutation. But in those salutations, we have some of the most richest theology. Even near, when I said to her that I was preaching on these four verses, like what? Yeah, preach from that. I'm like, yep, I'm going to preach from that. They are full of theology and full of practical examples for us to follow in the here and now. And this, this one in particular is no different. We are presented in these verses with a multiplicity of concepts. We'll see this morning, just from the first two verses, an example of Paul, not only giving us method and purpose in our evangelism, but also gospel truths, which are at the core of what it means to be a Christian. Keep in mind these as we look this morning, this twofold approach I want us to see. Methods in our evangelism, as well as core gospel truths. The opening salutation provides some excellent material for us to comprehend. Comprehend what made Paul so effective in his own ministry. And what kind of principles then we should have to follow as believers today to make our ministry and our evangelism effective for the Lord and for the kingdom. Firstly, just look at how Paul introduces himself here. I found this very interesting. Of all the people in the scriptures, Paul could probably give a list of credentials longer than the entire book of Titus. He could quite easily say and list off all his achievements and all the things that he's done. But you see instantly his humility. He says, Paul, bondservant, apostle of Christ. No fanciful names or proud statements that he very well could have made. But rather you see his humility and his commitment to the Lord's hand upon his life. Bondservant there is, you could translate it from the word julos which means slave, and it carries the connotations of slavery with it. And it's combined with the word apostle or apostolos, 
which is not some dignified, fanciful word, but rather just a simple word for messenger. So Paul, in these first few verses, he's acknowledging or he's saying, I am under God's control and my particular specific task is to take the message that Christ Jesus wants me to take. I am a messenger, I am a slave delivering a message. Paul understands straight up that as a believer, as someone who is born again, his whole life must be one of total submission and servanthood, one of complete devotion to God's work and God's plan. And because he was committed to God's work of being a messenger, he was committed to evangelism. He was committed to evangelism. We see this in verses 1 and 2. He says in verse 1 that his slavery to God and his apostleship concerning Jesus Christ was for what purpose? For the faith of the chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. His purpose of being an apostle and being a slave was for the faith of the chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life. And that's our passages for this morning. In these two verses we see Paul's methodology with regards to, to evangelism Examples that he gives us to follow when it comes to evangelism. And he does this by giving three separate gospel truths which all comprise his understanding of his mission from God to proclaim the gospel. We will see Paul's mission to firstly preach the gospel, to bring the chosen of God to faith. Secondly, to proclaim godliness, to bring the chosen of God who, has ex- who have exercised saving faith to the knowledge of the truth which is for the purpose of godliness. And thirdly, to proclaim the hope of eternal life, from verse and beginning of verse two, to bring those who are chosen of God to the hope of eternal life. All three of these were fundamental in Paul's ministry and Paul's mission as a messenger. So we'll look at each one in detail now. Our first point. Firstly, Paul's mission was to bring the chosen of the chosen of faith to God, or the elect of the faith. To God. Paul's mission was that, that he was to share the gospel, he was to proclaim the gospel, he was to teach the saving power of Jesus Christ through Jesus Christ's blood, through the death of him on a cross. This was Paul proclaiming justification to those who believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now, immediately, I know we all saw the words there, elect. Chosen. I know we all get a little bit shaky in our seats thinking, oh, is Alex going to talk about this? Yes, I am going to talk about this. I am going to talk about the doctrine of election because the doctrine of election is biblical. The doctrine of election is biblical. For anyone who is unclear on, on what the doctrine of election is, it's essentially that God in his absolute sovereignty, according to his mercy, chooses for himself, from before the foundation of the world, a people for himself as trophies of his grace. God sovereignly chose, from before the foundation of the world, those whom he willed would be his children. Not man, by his free will, choosing God. That is not election. Nor election is God looking down through the corridor of time. That is not election. And seeing who would choose him. Because that would mean that humans, us as human beings, us as sinful human beings would pay a part in our salvation. And this doesn't work. 
We as human beings are born in sin, we are totally depraved, and we cannot in and of ourselves choose God. There is no basic good in us to be able to even do that. The faith which we have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He, be- and that he died upon the cross, even that comes from God Himself. God Himself places that in our hearts from before the foundation of the world. What we seem to argue over so much in our day-to-day lives, Paul, through the direct revelation of God, is not unclear on. He even uses it to offer praise and worship to God. This doctrine is not just seen in the odd place here and there in Scripture. Quite often, as one of our home groups looked at this week, quite often this doctrine, the doctrine of election, is seen in the first few verses of, the first of, of most of the New Testament letters, often making its appearance for the first time in those few verses. The doctrine of election is biblical. Paul only knew too well as he writes this using the very specific languages, the chosen of God, the elect of God. And he says here, the reason I am a bond slave, the reason I know God chose me as an apostle, as a messenger, is to bring the chosen of God, the elect, to faith in Jesus Christ. So then the question is, how does the sovereignty of God, how does sharing the gospel fit in with election? How does evangelism and how does election go together? From man's perspective, as we think through, in our logical minds, it doesn't make sense. We can't, we can't bring these two truths together. If God has chosen who will be his, then why even bother with evangelism? It doesn't make sense. Valid point. But let me say this. If the inerrant, authoritative word of God gave us example after example after example of God's divine election of his people and then on top of that commands us to go and witness to them? Should we not do that? Yes, of course. We, in our, as human beings, we, with our human minds, we are not God. And praise the Lord for that. We cannot comprehend the mind of God nor, we can, nor can we understand his ways. And we don't need to because we are not him. Because if God in his word says that he chooses for himself a people for himself and commands us to go and witness, that is what we should do. End of story. Simple. This is, this is not part of my sermon, but I want to look at it anyway. Um, just quickly turn over to Romans chapter 9 with me, if you will. Very briefly, while we're on the topic of election. Some would oppose the doctrine of election, saying that it's only logical that if, if God would choose some for eternal life, then God would also choose some for destruction. That God would have to make both choices. This is what we call the, the, the doctrine of double predestination. And we here at NCC do not believe it. It is not biblical. It is not ever seen in the scriptures. One of the, one of the, for the people that, that argue against this and say that it is in the scriptures, they often turn to Romans 9. And we look firstly at verse 22. Verse 22 says, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, to make his power known, endured with much, much patience 
vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And then verse 23, And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. We have two verses here. One, prepared for destruction, and then the other, prepared for glory. So, by reading that, do we understand that God prepares people for both? No, definitely not. Verse 22, where it says, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. We, we say in the Greek, it, it's written in a, what we call a passive tense, passive voice rather. In other words, the vessels of wrath prepare themselves for destruction. Because man is born in sin, fully deserving of hell, he cannot, he is not going to choose God. He is in rebellion against God and is fully deserving of hell. But look at verse 23, where it talks about vessels prepared for glory. Here that prepared is in the active voice, and with meaning that God is the direct agent in bringing that person as prepared vessel for his glory. We may not understand it with our limited minds, but we have to believe that the scriptures clearly teach against the doctrine of double predestination. God's word teaches clearly the doctrine of election. Paul's example here is one of action. He's active. He's giving a great example. Just because God chooses does not negate our responsibility, does not make void our responsibility to witness to the world. As bond servants of Jesus Christ, our responsibility is to witness, our responsibility is to share the gospel whenever the opportunity arises, just as it was Paul's purpose in his ministry and in his own life. So in relation to evangelism, the scriptures command you, the scriptures command me, to share the gospel. Why? In the words of Spurgeon, to gather the elect for the kingdom of God. And that is truly an honouring task. And the fundamental truth to consider of this section, election in the gospel, proclaiming the truth, the truth of Christ to all, while acknowledging the absolute sovereignty, sovereign hand of God. It is a miracle that every time somebody comes to saving faith, Praise the Lord that it starts with him. Praise the Lord that it begins with him planting that in their life. Because I know certainly without the Lord doing that, I wouldn't choose him. So praise the Lord for that. So, firstly, Paul's mission was to bring the chosen of God to faith, to preach the gospel. Now, secondly, Paul's mission is to proclaim godliness. Paul's mission is to bring the chosen of God who would exercise saving faith to what? To knowledge of the truth which is for the purpose of godliness. He wants to proclaim godliness. Remember the message of Titus? We already see these two themes working hand in hand, the gospel and godliness. To bring the chosen of faith and bring the chosen of faith the bringing the chosen of faith to the gospel, the saving faith that they are dealing with, that process is called justification. But now because justification has taken place, the process of sanctification is now in full swing in their lives. Godliness or or growing in godliness is part of the process that we call sanctification. It is the continual conforming daily into the image of Christ. And this is something that takes place continually as we are sanctified through the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul says 
the mission was to bring the knowledge of the truth, which is literally for godliness, for the purpose of godliness. The word, that epinosis, that, that is knowledge. The reason I know that gnosis is knowledge is because if you say it with a German accent, it sounds like gnosis. So, hence, gnosis, epinosis, by putting the, the, um, by putting the preposition in front of the word, it compounds the word and it creates this idea of more than just an awareness. This knowledge is more than just, just having an understanding. This knowledge is deep rooted within our souls. This knowledge is full. It's comprehensive. He has in mind, Paul has in mind, the objective of bringing the clear, rich, experiential knowledge of divine truth and people know when that knowledge is in someone, he knows that when that knowledge is in someone, it will then produce godliness. Remember we said that the gospel void of godliness is a false gospel? Here we have the, the evidence for that. It's not just an awareness of truth, but a deep-rooted truth that is now realized in a believer's life and that truth then continues to work itself out through the process of sanctification or as we've called it, the pursuit of godliness. This is the beginning of the process of, of edification and Paul knew of its importance. Think of it in terms of evangelism as well. Paul was sharing the gospel with them and once they came to faith, he wanted to continue to share the deep truths with them as they continued to grow in their godliness. Paul says, look, when it comes to evangelism, share the gospel that the elect might be saved. And then once that initial saving faith or knowledge of the truth has happened in their life, it now opens up a greater knowledge of the truth which leads to sanctification producing good works. It's like his first task relates to justification and now his second task relates to sanctification. My first brings a truth to the elect that they might be saved. My second brings a truth to the elect that they might be sanctified. This is not a new truth. This is the process of salvation that we see continually throughout Scripture. See the intimate connection between truth and godliness. They are two inseparable ideas. The knowledge of the truth that saves leads to godliness. Saving grace, as I just read to you in Titus 2, instructs us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and leads us into righteous, godly living patterns. But also, a vital possession of truth is always inconsistent with ungodliness. Real truth never deviates from piety. Any profession of truth does not lead an individual to a godly life in one degree or another. It's just a mere profession of faith but is not a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel without godliness is a false gospel. The objective, the saving gospel... The subject of godliness corresponds to one another inseparably. And just for a moment while we are here looking at godliness, how do we know what godliness even looks like? How do we see the godly truths? How do we know what Christ-like behaviour is? Just from thinking about it? It comes through the reading and the studying of the word of God on a daily basis. 1 Peter 2 verse 3, you don't have to turn there. But we'll read it. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. 
Growing in the knowledge of truth, growing in your godliness, comes by the pure milk of the word of God. The application for this section, are you growing in your godliness personally? Are you not? I can tell somebody that is not growing in godliness, there is evidence there. They are not somebody that is daily in the word of God, reading and studying the scripture, somebody that does not have a high priority of, of scripture in their own personal life. Are you stagnant in your love for the word of God? Because if you are, your godliness will be affected by that. And in terms of evangelism, this truth, evangelism is not just about leading somebody to the gospel and leaving them cold turkey. You can go stand in the street and preach, share the gospel with a thousand people, but if you do not follow up on that and lead them as, as Paul is doing here, he wants to continue to show them. Remember John Glass a couple of weeks ago at InStep conference, he was saying how evangelism is not just a, a once-off thing by a single person. It has to be with the continual process of desiring them to grow in their godliness. They need to be pointed in the direction of a local church where they can be fed, where they can continue to grow. That is our responsibility in our evangelism, to continue to teach truth to somebody who has come to saving faith. And our third and and final point for this morning, we have a mission or the principle of sharing the gospel then to continue to encourage godliness through the deepening knowledge of the word of truth. And now thirdly, in the last phase or the last part that made up Paul's mission is this principle to bring the chosen of God to proclaim the hope of eternal life. Paul is now, he's looking ahead, he's wanting to encourage this, this hope of eternal life. See this at the start of verse 2. See this kind of past, present, future thing going on here as well? The past component, the election of God. The present component is the growth and the sanctification, the growth in godliness. And now we have the, the future component, which comprises of this anticipation of glory to come. In terms of evangelism, Paul's like, I'm about all of those. My mission is to share the gospel, to share and encourage the growth of godliness and to preach the hope of eternal life. You know what preaching or or sharing the hope of eternal life is? It means to preach an eternal heaven, to preach an eternal salvation, to preach a returning Christ. Titus 2:13 says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our glory in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And even in chapter 3, verse 7, he talks about the fact that we've been justified by his grace in order that we might be heirs according to eternal life. So what exactly is the hope of eternal life? Well, one thing it isn't is is it's not a wish. It's not just some uncertain, doubtful, something, possible, maybe. The hope of eternal life. Hope is believing what is not yet yours will be, according to the scriptures. It is believing what is not yet yours fully at the present time, but it will be absolutely, unequivocally, certainly guaranteed to be yours someday. And that's heaven, that's eternal glory. The promise 
is absolutely secure. We have the down payment of the Holy Spirit. We have the intercession of Christ at the right hand of God as our high priest that no one can lay charges against his people. God has already justified us and Christ continues to intercede for us on our behalf against the accusations of our enemy. You say, what is the, the value of knowing? The, what is the value of knowing that God is in heaven preparing a place for us? What is the value of knowing of the hope of eternal life? The value of it, and Paul is getting to it pre, further down in his letter, is that the hope of eternal life is an encouragement to us. Three ways that I could think it is an encouragement to us. Firstly, the hope of eternal life encourages us, encourages us towards holiness. Think, if we know one day that we will be standing before the throne of God ready to be judged for our time on this earth, would you not want to live a life now that is pleasing to him in order to be rewarded for that in eternity? Second, it encourages us to service, faithful service of the Lord. Again, one day we'll be standing before his throne ready to see, receive our awards. Will you hear the words, good and faithful servant, spoken to you? And thirdly, it encourages us through suffering. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. There is no comparison between pain here and glory there. This hope, this hope of eternal life sustains us through trials. This is a hope that inspires me, that inspires you to holiness and to service. The truth from this section that I want you to consider is, do you live in light of the hope of eternal glory offered through Christ Jesus? Do you live in light of eternity? I often think that the majority of my frustrations would be gone if I did that more often. And in relationship to evangelism, this is an important truth that must be explained. In fact, quite often this is a, a great lead-in to, to witnessing to somebody. Hey, do you know what's going to happen to you when you die? Explain this truth. Make this truth clear when you're sharing the gospel. Paul's mission is very clear. He wants to bring the elect to saving faith by the gospel. He wants to bring the saved to sanctification by leading them in the full knowledge of God through the sound doctrine that would lead them to godliness. And he wants to make crystal clear in the minds of his readers the reality of eternal life, that great and glorious hope that motivates us towards purity and motivates us towards service, strengthening us through all suffering and the struggles of life because we anticipate the eternal glory, the heavenly glory. This sums up Paul's mission Paul's ministry, he was committed to God's mission which was clear in his mind. The gospel, growth in godliness and then living in light of the eternal hope. Let us also strive for the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are overwhelmed by the truth of your scriptures. We are in awe of the God that you are. You wanted to show us your love through the Lord Jesus Christ so you made us, made the eternal promise to redeem some of us out of humanity and to give us the gift of love. You chose us, Lord. We never know why and we do not deserve it. We are astounded and we are grateful, Lord.
Lord, you have committed for us the task of serving you, bringing the gospel to people, bringing the edifying truth that leads to godliness, bringing encouragement of eternal life. Give us humble hearts of a slave, Lord, the faithfulness of a messenger who knows the message, the loyalty that is your word, Lord, and and the, the effectiveness that is required of us, Lord. Let us be purposeful and confident in proclaiming you and your word, Lord. For Christ's sake, amen. Stand for our benediction this morning from 1 Timothy. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King and King and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honour and eternal dominion forever and ever. Amen.